Um, Mariam Issa is here to speak to us tonight, so we're really lucky to have her. And she's got an amazing story to tell, which I think will be very inspiring for everyone. So basically, Mariam came from Africa about 20 years ago as a refugee and landed in Brighton in Melbourne, where she believed she was probably the first African woman. So she was quite isolated for quite a long time and she started up RAW, which is Resilient Aspiring Women. And through gardening, she connected with her community and has created a really great thing there. So I'd like to introduce Mariam. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, I come from an oral culture, which is really big in storytelling. So, um, and I would like, before I start telling stories, I just want to take a moment um, to acknowledge our elders on whose land we meet today, but also our elders who came after them, and our elders who some of them might not ever have set foot on this land, but some of us are representatives of. Uh, in our African culture, we say that there is no death, there is the continuation of life. And I believe that our elders are with us tonight. Whenever we come for celebrations, they really love that. Um, not in a spooky way. Science, <laughs> science now does say that they do live in us in, through our DNA. So there we go. So again, in our oral um, African culture, it is said that, culture, that um, cultures who don't tell stories die out. And I truly believe that and I believe in the power of storytelling because I know that there is an incredible story in each and every one of us here tonight. And when we come together and share these stories, that is when we create incredible communities. Communities that are resilient and are adaptable. And I, I think that the stories that reside in us are stories that come from the triumphs over our adversities, from uh, the simple joys of our lives. And I think that those stories also feed our human spirit because from the spaces that we share, which is stories can only be shared from the heart, it's, it's vulnerable spaces. And we have forgotten how to be vulnerable with each other. So I am going to be very vulnerable with you tonight and share with you the stories of not only myself, but I believe that every time I stand in a platform like this, that I am given an opportunity to tell not only my story, but to bring the stories of the women who never had this platform, whose stories were never heard, and who were never acknowledged. And there are so many women like that who, you know, uh, do the work behind the scenes, for instance, I am your keynote speaker tonight, and I might take, you know, uh, this time I'm glorified at this, but for this 
incredible um, permaculture uh, community to come together. There's been incredible people behind the scenes who made it happen. And it's no easy task. So I would love for all of us to really acknowledge those people. And could we please have a round of applause for everyone behind the scenes. Thank you guys, and I feel like it's a real privilege for me. Thank you so much for being invited in these spaces. Uh, Robin was the one who invited me, but I'm sure that she represents all the other people behind the scenes. And um, I feel not only privileged, but I feel a great honor, because it is an honor to share my story, and my story starts uh, began 20 years ago when I came to Australia as a refugee. I come from Somalia, the sub-Saharan deserts of Africa, and both my parents were nomads, and um, they, that's why I, I know the true stories of resilience because of, of, of their story. So coming uh, to this setting, it was nothing that I ever predicted. It was not something that I ever thought I would one day go and live. Among the people that I had, I never knew anyone, a Westerner in my life, and I only read about you guys in books. Um, so I never knew if it was true that there were people with green eyes and blonde hair. <laughs> so for me, you were just an imagination that one day you know, became true. And when we landed in Perth, my daughter, I, I came with four children, so my middle child is a girl, and she usually isn't very shy, and they were very excited to, to come because we were very lucky refugee. We came through the family reunion, so we were, being, um, we, we were coming to our family in Australia. And so I saw her very shy, and she was clinging to me, and I said, darling, what's wrong? And she was unhappy, and I was concerned. I said, what happened? Are you okay? And she said, why are these people pink? <laughs> what's going on? What's wrong with them? <laughs> and somehow, I didn't even know that, because I had a lot of other anxieties. You know, I was bringing four children into a country that I didn't know. I was pregnant. I was so tired. And then all of a sudden, when I looked around, I realized what my daughter was talking about, the total color change of, you know, uh, the place that we have come to. We came from Africa where everybody was black and then all of a sudden there was this very white space. And so our journey began from that. Little did I know that I was going to be settled in Brighton, one of the most affluent and very white suburb in Melbourne. And so sometimes we do say ignorance is bliss, and in this case for me it was because I didn't know Brighton for what it was. <laughs> Otherwise I don't think that I would have, have stayed there as long as I did. And so coming to Brighton, I think we really felt that um, we were very, first of all, we were very lucky and very happy that 
we came and we were resettled because we had been displaced eight years prior to, to coming to Australia. And it was a very hard journey for us. Um, we lost our homeland when I was 23 years of age. Um, I left home at that time. I was pregnant with uh, my third child. I had two very little children and I, was, I left Mogadishu to come to Kenya. Again, I was a very lucky refugee because Kenya was my hometown, was my country. I, I lived in Kenya and had gone back to Somalia and married, married there. So when I came by boat as a refugee, I had a Kenyan passport. And when I showed the authorities, because the whole boat was going to be returned to Somalia, no one wanted uh, the Somali refugees. Kenya felt that it had filled its capacity for refugees. And so when I showed my passport, they said, yeah, you can come in, but we don't allow your children to come in. And they were two years and three years, respectively. And I did not have, uh, my husband wasn't with me at the time. So with any war that happens, the men who fight it are the enemies, the, the enemies from one side, and the men who defend are the, you know, the defenders from this side. The casualty of war usually is mothers and children and elders. And the whole boat that I came in was all packed full with elders and children and, and, and mothers. And so in that, and in the displacement of eight years, I understood what it meant for women, the war that they faced and the way they went from one place to another. And sometimes some of them were widowed, some of them were raped around um, in, in camps, some of them came alone and did not have families. And so I witnessed, I witnessed the war of women. And when I came to Australia and lived in Brighton and integrated into um, the Western community in Brighton. I lived through phases. So my first phase was a phase of victimhood. And in that phase of victimhood, where I felt that I was a victim of war, that I did not know anyone in this country, I started to interact with people. And amazingly, the people that I interacted with were also victims. And it's incredible because for me, I didn't realize at the time, but I kept a journal. And in hindsight, when I read this, when I read this journal, I realized that whatever we harbor in our hearts is what we project into the world and what we see in front of us. And so, having interacted with the Western woman and understood her, I started to have, I started to make friends. And I realized that the friends that were around with me were women who also had problems. 
and their problems were viol family violence. And they also felt that they were victims. And having come to this culture, that in the beginning, for me, I admired the glamour and the beauty of Brighton. And I realized that in this setting, that nothing could, could be wrong. And it was out of, in the beginning, it was out of for my children to belong in this community that I went out and wanted to be part of, of this community. But in, as I, you know, as I went into, um, into the community, I realized that I was remembering something that I had forgotten about myself, which was independence. I lived in a culture, a communal culture, and communal culture is a culture of dependency. It is a culture where you know, you know yourself among others, and you don't know yourself. You do, you're not an individual. And coming to this setting, I was amazed because when I saw the Western woman, I saw the woman like, you know, in, she was the community leader. You know, she was the teacher of the, the, my, um, the schools. She was the doctor that I visited. And I really wanted to understand this woman. And I wanted to see her in her natural habitat and how she does this. So I worked in Brighton Homes as, as a cleaner and really, you know, stalked this woman and really wanted to know her story and what she did to be in these spaces. And that's how I discovered, and I was, you know, after that I was introduced into the coffee culture and I started having stories with this woman. And then I realized that the stories were not as I thought. Because I also went into aged care centers and I worked in aged care centers and I became, I started to volunteer a lot. And I realized that amidst this beautiful glamour and glory, there was also a less apparent truth. That I cleaned beautiful, big Brighton homes, but not many people lived in them. And in the, you know, in the aged care centers, uh, elders were not happy. The elders, the wisdom of the community was away from the community. And then I realized that young children were roaming in shopping malls. And then I saw the isolation in Brighton. And I also saw that there was mental illness. There were 10-year-old or 12-year-olds committing suicide. What did they know about life? And so it became apparent for me that in this setting, there was also a war going on. And it might not be a war which, like ours, there was bloodshed, but in this war, there was an emotional war. There was a big destruction. And I connected dots and realized that this war was the war of the woman who was not nurtured. And I realized that there is something big that was happening with women. And that is when I took the initiative to, to, to call upon these women and say we need to do something. And that's when I opened my backyard 
as a community garden. So Raw, the name R-A-W, came to me in a dream. And at that time, I really wanted to start an organization, but I didn't know what I was going to name it. And 2 a.m. in the morning, I woke up, I wrote that name down, and in the morning, it translated to resilient, aspiring women. And if you read resilient, aspiring women, raw, backwards, it said war. So war, the women had to stop the war inside, to tap into their resilience and their aspirations. So I also realized that the war of women is the war that is projected in the world. If we really took a, take a moment now and think about all the wars that are going around the world, it is because of the destruction of women. That is called the, the destruction that is caused upon women. When women are raped, when women are taken out of, you know, I, I remember in, you know, in my refugee stages, one day I saw, and this is a true story, I saw a mother who put down her child who was crying, and this is a baby, and she put it down and just left and never came back because she did not have anything to feed that child. And then I also was part of a refugee camp where this woman told her story about letting go of her child who had held on to her when a boat capsized because she, ha she was having another child to, pro you know, uh, to take care of. And that woman could not forget how she had allowed her other child to die. And when we feel, you know, when, when these when women are going through this, then how can the world move on? How can we allow this? And I realize that until women heal, until they find peace, I don't think our world will find peace. And what I do at the Raw Garden, and it did not start like that. For me, it was just a need. I realized that the community I had come into did not understand my ways. And I know that through those days I realized and I learned that culture is a currency. And when your currency is inflated, you can't buy anything with it. So the community that I had come into did not understand my culture. They knew, they knew nothing about it. And so all the work that had to be done was to come from us as a family to integrate and to be part of this community and to allow them to know us so that we can, you know, they can understand us. So I had to strengthen that cultural currency. I had to make it strong for others to interact with us. And through making um, that strong, I realized also that there was an element of trust that was missing in all of us. I think we're inflicted with fear and um, we have been taught to fear the other. And in this new community I had I'd come to, I we were the other. 
We were labeled, we were given a big label of stranger. And that label was so hard to remove. And I believe that there are a lot of labels that we put on each other. And until we realize, you know, from, a, from our inner knowing that these are just labels and that we have the ability to remove, uh, remove them, then that's the only time that we can learn to be human, the human spirit together. That is, and, and we can only remove these labels by sharing something, by sharing our humanity. And by opening that door or to my backyard, I remembered my mother saying, my mother always used to tell us, if you can host someone in your heart, then you can host them in your home. So I took that in a very literal way. And until you find a place in your heart to forgive and to let go, you cannot allow people to be near you. And you cannot have them to, you know, um, come into your backyard. And one of the most important things that happened for myself and my family was the fact that we were taught. Um, we learned so much through the raw garden. Uh, and one of the biggest learning was that there is family beyond, you know, blood relations. And everyone that who came into my backyard, it was, it was not an easy thing to begin with. But when people started to, um, to slowly trust, and they started to come into our backyard, it became really apparent the need that we had for each other. And in that space, it's just a, a small block of land. We now have about 40 fruit trees. And um, we cook together. Yeah, like we invite people from the community who come in and uh, do cooking classes. Um, we do storytelling. But the most amazing thing is there is the investment that was put into that backyard is more than $55,000. And none of that was paid by my family. It was paid by the community, trusting um, that they could invest in someone else's backyard so that people could gather together and that they could have, um, they could come and tell stories together. Um, I don't think it is an, an easy thing. I'm, I think community work is one of the really hardest things, but I believe that it is the best investment that we can ever make. And I realized that, you know, wherever we are, like even being here tonight, no one is ever anywhere randomly. We're invited to a place because we have something to give, or we have something to receive. You not only give something, you also receive something. So what I learned was that I wasn't in Brighton randomly. I was brought there to remind people of what they had forgotten about themselves. And I was also reminded of what I had forgotten about myself. So I got my independence back, 
And I knew, I, I realized that dependency, being a communal member on its own does not work. And being dependent, independent, in the, the way the Western culture is, is not also something that works on its own. So when we bring the two together, it's, that is when we have interdependence and we self-actualize. Because what you have, I need. And what I have, you need. And there is a remarkable word in our African culture that says Ubuntu. And Ubuntu means I am because you are. If there is no you, then there is no me. And that is the level of interconnectedness. And I don't think that, because most often I'm told that we're very lucky here in Australia, we have peace. I know we are, but we're not immune to the, to the wars that are happening outside of our country, uh, or outside of Australia. Everything has a rippling effect. If we have peace here, and then we can have that peace in a way that we can make it a rippling effect for others. The minute I stepped into my power as a woman, I have liberated other women in my community. And I don't think that we have to really, um, I, I talk, people talk a lot about empowering women. I believe that women are already empowered. All they need is to be reminded of that power. And they need to, you know, we all need to allow the power of women to come, you know, uh, to, be, to, to prosper. Because when it does, that's when our communities will really uh, blossom. So I, I, I believe in a, an interactive conversation. And having told you my story, I'll leave it at that and you can ask me questions and then it can be an interactive one. can ask questions now. <laughs> or just a comment, it doesn't have to be a question. Wow, <laughs> banana tree. <laughs> we have a banana tree in my backyard. And um, the beauty of what I had forgotten to tell you and, and the power of the raw garden is that when we started, we started with intentions. So every fruit tree in the garden was uh, put in by a community, a community member adapted a tree and they put in with an intention. So every, every fruit tree has an intent. So my mother was the elder who was present that day and when she put down her fruit tree, she said, I want my tree to be a tree of abundance. And her tree was an apple tree. It wasn't supposed to fruit that year, but it had an abundant fruit. So it taught us the power of intention. And so everything I remember back home, when you start something, you, we were always told to start with an intention. We're told, what is your intention? Because whatever you're doing, that is what it will, you know, whatever intent that you had is what will fruit from there. So.
yeah, the banana tree reminds me of home. Uh, every Tuesday and every Sunday. So we open two days a week. And we also have, um, if, you, if we have any Melbournians here, we invite you to come to the garden. And we have also um, a website um, called raw, it's raw-australia.org.au. Um, so we did a campaign. Um, I did actually a permaculture course. And through that eight-week course, that is when I realized I was already working in the community sector. So we would invite women in closed spaces and we were working with refugees and asylum seekers. And in my case, I was working with African women. And then nobody was coming. People did not want to come to the community centers. And I realized when I was doing the permaculture course that, yeah, the African woman doesn't really know herself in closed spaces. And it reminded me of how empty my backyard is. And that's how I got the idea to start uh, the community garden. So um, the women who come are multicultural women. So our organization is a multicultural organization. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I started as a victim uh, phase. So in the victim phase, I did a lot of, uh, I was in depression. So most often I didn't do much. And then when I moved into the anger phase, the second phase, that was when I became an activist. I was angry about, you know, um, what was happening to myself, but also to the war that I had witnessed and everything. So. Anger is so much better than being depressed. Because in anger then you can blame other people and you can point fingers. And so, so through that um, anger, I started to really realize a lot of things about myself. But again, you, if you're caught in anger for too long, you can easily go into depression. So for me, I was very lucky and I moved into, um, into a space where I thought, well, instead of pointing fingers and, and, and thinking that this has been done to me, what kind of a life do I want for myself? Or what do I envision? And I think that is when I stepped into my empowerment phase. The phase where I felt that I have to take responsibility for my life. And by taking responsibility then meant that what kind of world did I want to see around me? And that's where this, um, my life as a community developer started and my, my passion for working with women and showing, uh, you know, um, showing them the possibilities instead of being a victim or instead of being angry, why don't we take um, you know, our matters in our hands and create something that and create, actually imagine the world that we wanted to see. And so I did a lot of campaign towards um, starting the Raw Garden. So I went into Brighton Homes, and even before I started the Raw Garden, I, I had cooking um, business. So through that cooking business, I built networks. And so through these networks is when I went back again into Brighton Homes, but this time as uh, a person who had a campaign a person who was um, calling people for, for a better life. And I think sometimes, you know, you don't see the whole picture. That's where I learned to trust 
But once you just trust that this is all I can do for now, then the other part of uh, the journey is revealed to you. And for me, ever since, I have been, you know, incredibly um, blessed in the sense that I have done so many things that I never ever thought I was capable of doing. And I realize also that you cannot create in other people's realities. And that meant even my own children. All you could do is inspire others to do the best they can by you being the best you can be. And so that is my motto now. Like, just live the best life you can and do the best you, you can do. And stop blaming, stop judgments, and just do what you need to do. And in that space, you inspire people. And people literally change because you're that change yourself. Okay. So the first woman that I called into the movement was a permaculture friend, and she did permaculture design. So she designed the garden. And the second woman was a German woman who I met through my daughter when she was starting her secondary years. And she came because she also knew what it meant to be isolated, because she was a migrant herself. So it, those two women were the first women who supported the organization. And through them, I think we attracted more women. I'm powerful. And the first days when we started off in Brighton, um, our next door neighbor, my children's ball went into his court. And one night, we had this angry man knock on our door. And he said, by the way, my name is John and I'm your next door neighbor. Your children's ball is in my courtyard and my dogs dig. Could you not allow that to happen again? And he left. We were watching neighbors at the time. <laughs> and, and then, um, three, I think two, three weeks later, Mohammed and I were catching up with Brighteners and he, Mohammed was l mowing the lawn. And he did a bit of John's area. And John happened to be home that night, that day. And he came out with two beers. And he said, thank you, mate. And he took two con unconsumed beers, because Mohammed doesn't drink, to start uh, a neighborly, you know. So that was the extent. And now, you know, literally, we people from Brighton, and John doesn't live there anymore, but we have a lot of different neighbors who come and share their fruit and share, you know, whatever it is, they would come and they would say, oh, we have this. And we started an, a neighborly, you know, conversation. And it's incredible how it has changed. And there is also, if you go to our website, you'll see one of the, our projects that we did was for elders. And we brought elders from um, the neighboring community, um, the neighboring age care centers, and we did a project for them there. It was just incredible. And so now Bayside Council has even come on board as well and supports us with grants and, and things like that. So it's a very, you know, um, grassroots movement, but really powerful in, in, in the way that it, it's happening. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of work is happening in that, in that area. But I think what is really happening in, 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 
in the whole world. What is really happening is that we're being challenged. And uh, I think humanity is at a crossroads. There is a lot of incredible change that is happening. And I think we are being called to the arena. We've been sideliners and, and we've been sitting from, you know, the sides and just looking um, from outside in. And I don't think that, um, you know, uh, that is possible anymore. And I think there is a whole universal uh, movement that is going on, whether it is uh, done by humans or it is coming for us to, you know, to change us. It's, it's an awakening. And I think leaving our, you know, um, wanting change to happen from our leaders is also something that is not possible anymore. And we see that the systems that we have created that are haunting us now and we cannot even um, get out of is another, another thing that we see. So a lot of these things is happening and a lot of challenges is in our faces. And so I think that is what is making it you know, um, a possibility for us to come together and to unite. And because it's affecting, no one is immune. Everyone is being affected in, in is being affected in this uh, in these problems. So what that, you know, that um, gang thing has done for the African communities, uh, community is the fact that Africa is 53 countries. And most of the Africans who come from the western part of Africa come as, um, you know, uh, migrants who, you know, skilled migrants. It's only in the eastern part of Africa that uh, some Africans come as refugees. And so we've all been grouped together as Africans. And so what happened is that we found in that space of being grouped together, we found in that challenge, we found unity. And we're now coming together and, you know, trying to find solutions together. And I think having done that, not only as Africans, but now even we're, you know, we're bringing in Australians and, and other cultures as well. So I think it's, we do need um, these challenges. Um, I, I don't like the word help, because help creates helplessness. And I think we have, the way we use language is sometimes very damaging. Um, we can support someone, but we cannot help people. And that even is very apparent as a mother, when you see you know, your young child. Um, if your child falls down, and you sort of go, you know, and, and feel sorry for them, they cry straight away, and they feel your energy. But if you sort of go, oh, wow, that was a big jump, they sort of stand up and feel empowered already. So I think that the support that people who are coming from different countries come here, that people, first of all, have to acknowledge that people don't come uh, helpless. You know, this person has come from, you know, uh, the journey that he has taken to bring him here is already a very resilient journey. And sometimes they come with many skills. And if you can just allow them as a host um, to give them that spaces to discover themselves or to just, you know, uh, find their, their place, 
then that's all is needed because no one is asking for a handout. And the unfortunate thing is the minute you come, people see you as a weakness. And one, most of the questions, or the, uh, you know, uh, when I was in Brighton, was you know, the, the things that I was asked, the assumptions that were made. And some of the assumptions, you know, the one that I, is thrown at you and you hear, is so much easier to take than the ones that were thought and never voiced. So there's a lot of assumptions about refugees. Ref refugees are very resourceful uh, human beings because by the time they come here, they've used a lot of you know, uh, men, you know, resourcefulness to, to really be in this space to begin with. And, and so I think, and, and also uh, we come here because we have something to offer. And uh, we learn so much from each other. And I think through my journey, of course, I have had amazing support. And no one is self-made. I think we, as a community, we can help each other in that sense. But it's not to see each other as a weakness. And I think when we visit someone with our strength and see their weakness, then that's when we damage them. But if we go with our strength and see their strength, that is when we uplift them. And one of the things that really has supported me in the space that I am today and standing here is the fact that other women have seen my strength before I saw it myself. And because they held it for me, that is the, the mirror that they showed me. And that's how I became who I am now. <laughs>